Coming up next, the bookening reads more Ray Bradbury. Bookening week four of October, or should I say the bookening? You know, I don't think I've ever done that pun before. And and all the. I I was wondering uh, on uh, the first episode of this Bradbury series if, when I listened to it, if if you actually did it, but I never heard it. Of all the thousands of Halloween related puns that we've done, I don't know that we've ever actually hit the bookening. Yeah, I don't think we have. That's an interesting thing about us. Maybe it's because. We aim for quality. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody thinks when they hear your endless puns. He's really going for quality. It's quality. the perfect pun that it, he's after. It's not about quantity. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about pounding this idea into the ground, beating that horse till it's pulverized. <laughs> yeah, thank you. See, welcome to the bookening. Uh, and uh, we are recording. Fun fact about this episode, folks, this is the earliest we've ever recorded an episode. It is currently 8.39 in the morning. I guess you could argue we've recorded like, <laughs> the earliest is actually two o'clock in the morning but we, we've never actually made a point of starting at two o'clock in the morning generally we are now th- this is eight thirty-nine in the morning jake just dropped his kids off at school that's right came over here to record this episode got here a little late there's a lot of traffic on the uh new interstate being constructed a lot of traffic on the i've heard there's some traffic on that interstate took it down to uh one lane took it down to one lane yeah that's too bad we don't we usually don't have traffic problems but today is a very special episode. Brandon Chastine, not here, Jake. Out there. Making money. Making money, feeding his family, doing, but he's been replaced. That's right. Been replaced, not permanently, but. And our listeners will have to decide whether or not it should be a permanent replacement. Yeah. Is this an upgrade? <laughs> you decide. The weakest link. <laughs> but I should introduce our normal cast of characters first. I'm your humble and obedient host or ghost, joined by the pastor who's a master of. I can't even remember what the real one is. <laughs> pastor is master of reading. Yeah. <laughs> or bleeding, considering that it is the final week of October. Or actually, no, this is not the final week of October. We don't have a it's whole It's the last other. full week of October. Yes, this is the last bookening that you'll hear in October. So we wish you a happy Halloween. Enjoy your, uh, or, or Reformation Day, or Harvest Day, if you must. Or birthday of Abraham Knox Mensel Day. Or birthday of Jake's son, Abraham Knox Mensel. Yeah. The most important thing that happens on October 31st. That's right. Was it a spooky birthing process? I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> uh, yeah, Abraham Knox Menzel, born on the day that Martin Luther uh, nailed those 95 theses to the to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, something that we all are appreciative of, unless you're one of our listeners that's not, in which case... Uh, you're wrong. You're wrong. You should tell him. <laughs> tell him, Jake. We are joined today by a special guest. He is one of the trio that comprises My Soul Among Lions. That's a fun fact about him. My Soul Among Lions in, in, in their Kickstarter right now, Jake. True or false? True. If you don't know who My Soul Among Lions is, well, we'll have him tell you who they are in a second. But first, we'll introduce him. He is also one of the founding teachers. He was a teacher of high school. Yes? 
Elementary and uh, middle and high school. Elementary, middle and high school at Cedars School, during which he taught literature. It would be one of the subjects that he taught. He is also a Ray Bradbury super fan. Fair to say? I'm a fan, for he, sure. He's a fan, for sure. I think he's more a more of a super fan than anyone else in this room, or even if Brandon was in this room. Well, certainly if Brandon was in this room, because he's never read anything, but something wicked this way comes, which he thoroughly enjoyed. So every time I see Andrew, almost, we end up talking about Ray Bradbury, and I thought we should just do this on the microphones for you, because Andrew has lots of good thoughts about, uh, and I haven't even said his name. Well, I've said his name, but I haven't officially said his name. It's Andrew Henry. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, well, yeah, glad our, to have you. Thanks for coming. Our pleasure. Now, My Soul Among Lions, oh, winding down its Kickstarter, what is My Soul Among Lions? Tell the people real quick. My Soul Among Lions is a trio of church musicians based out of Clear Note Church here in Bloomington, Indiana, and we are setting the entire book of Psalms to music. So we've been working through 10 Psalms a year, launching a Kickstarter each fall to cover our recording costs. And so every spring we release an album, the next volume of 10 Psalms. We are getting ready to uh, start recording this spring, volume three, Psalms 21 to 30. And we are in the middle of our Kickstarter right now. We would love to have your support. You can find us on Kickstarter or at mysoulamonglions.com. If you sign up for our email, you'll get some free music. If you support our Kickstarter, you basically get to pre-order the album and get it before it's released publicly, so please check that out. And you get a, fr- a free download of Psalm 22, which... Will true, be on the album. Which will be on the album, and is a fantastic song. Get it right away. Get it right, get it, get it now. Don't wait until whenever the Kickstarter's... When is it? Oh, the Kickstarter would be over on the 31st. Yeah. Yeah. We end the Kickstarter on Reformation Day Abraham slash Knox's Halloween. Birthday. Most importantly, Abraham Knox's birthday. Great. Yeah, Abraham Menzel, I guess, is what most people yeah. call him. But yeah, so we're gonna like... we're gonna pretend like his last name is Knox because <laughs> Reformation. So this is so this is what we're going to do today, folks. We're, we're going to talk all things Ray Bradbury. We're going to give give you a slightly different perspective on Ray Bradbury, namely Andrew's perspective on Ray Bradbury. You've heard our thoughts. We're, we're we are going to go through five stories, handpicked by Mr. Henry. We're going to talk about them. Five stories, uh, some of which our Twitter friends that like Ray Bradbury have already mentioned. I think Kelly was just talking yesterday about the scythe, maybe or um, I missed that. I want to say the scythe, and she was saying how great it was. But first. My first question for Mr. Henry, I'm going to have him address something that another one of our Twitter friends said. Um, this this Twitter friend has been struggling, struggling mighty, mightily, Andrew. The booketing said, listen to our episode part two. That's what, So he replied, trying to figure out if I want to read this book. Read eight chapters and I'm struggling. Not sure what it me- this means. Maybe it isn't the right book for me. Or maybe I need to read another eight chapters. Or maybe I don't understand how to approach weird fiction. What would you say to a man who is struggling with something wicked this way comes. Ray Bradbury is not for everybody. Some people find it to be an acquired taste. I took to it immediately. I really liked his short fiction especially, which was my introduction to him. I only read the novels after I'd read many of the short stories. How did you discover him? Did you... Homeschooling taught me to procrastinate through literature. We had a schoolroom at my parents' house uh, that was our library. There were lots and lots of books. My dad actually studied uh, English and literature and was a teacher for a while. He studied with Marshall McLuhan and with Northrop Fry at the University of Toronto and so had an extensive collection of poetry, lots and lots of books. My dad was especially interested in John Donne, and so I grew up reading and talking to my dad about John Donne, which is cool, something most kids don't get to do. (laughs) That's pretty cool. But when I was homeschooled, I was often sort of left to my own devices, just had to get a certain amount of work done during the day, and I would often take breaks and just pull books off the shelf and sit there and read when I was supposed to be doing my math. Just about anything that caught my eye, I'd pull down and give it a go. Actually, my mom was a Ray Bradbury fan, so she collected Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury. She was also a big fan of Frank Herbert, the whole Dune series, which is why uh, I tried 
tried to hack my way through that when I was about 10. It was too early. Dune was too much. I couldn't understand the the politics and all the all the undercurrents happening in all those conversations. I just couldn't get them. Well, any book that starts with like fake quotes from fake historical documents about a fake history, Dune is really dense, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Well, I, I reread it again. I reread it later and, and loved it. I've not finished the whole series, but it, I just, it was too much for me. It was over my head at the time. But Ray Bradbury was accessible. How uh, old would you have been? Uh, I was probably 10 or 11 when I started reading Ray Bradbury. And the first story I read was one we're going to talk about today, The Velt. Mm-hmm. And it was one that my mom had specifically commented on. She had the uh, the October Country, The Illustrated Man, Dandelion Wine, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Fahrenheit 451, a lot of his stuff. And I had to read Fahrenheit 451 as a freshman in high school, as many people have had to do. And I was really underwhelmed by it. Okay, so you agree with us, basically. Yeah. We Have you heard our thoughts on that? Uh, I've heard some of it. I, I haven't finished your episodes on Something Wicked, so I haven't caught your whole Bradbury discussion. But we yeah. just mentioned we were all passing. We were all underwhelmed by it. That's the only... Bradbury, apart from a couple of the short stories that I had brought to Something Wicked This Way Comes, and I was definitely underwhelmed by Fahrenheit 451, so I wasn't sure what to expect. I had a, I had a high school teacher. I, actually, I, I guess I read it as a sophomore, not a freshman. I had a high school teacher, and we did a, a semester on dystopian literature. Gotcha. Um, yep. And it was really dark, actually. <laughs> um, we read Brave New World, Darkness at Noon, A Separate Piece, hmm. uh, Fahrenheit 451. Not 1984. We did read 1984. Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon is very, very dark. It's about an old Bolshevik who's getting purged in the Stalinist era, and he's in prison sort of reminiscing about what the revolution was, what he did in it, what it has turned into, and how now his generation is being consumed by it. Um, And very much, uh, it's a a bitter book. Mm. But of all those books, so oftentimes Fahrenheit 451 gets paired up with Brave New World and 1984 is like a classic sci-fi 20th century dystopian novel. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it begins to measure up to either of those other two books. Some of the themes that appear in these Bradbury stories, like themes about alienation and isolation and loneliness, an ambivalence or a fear of the outcomes of technology advancements, those things are in those other dystopian books and we're coming to them, a lot of those now in real life, like in The Velt, it's an automated home. It does things for you. And now we just say, hey, Alexa. Right. Um, Alexa doesn't have a telepathic nursery room yet. Right. (laughs) You know. We we already we're we're living in voice commanded world. Yeah. What is it that you remember liking about him when you first read him? Like, what was it that engaged you? It's it's primarily a style thing. When I read Ray Bradbury, I'm never thinking about Ray Bradbury. Mm -hmm. When I read him, I'm always sucked into the story and. I don't have to think about the author at all. I'm not thinking about what he's trying to make me think. I'm not thinking about how he's trying to do it. You know, it's the difference between watching somebody who's so-so do a slate of hand trick and you're like trying to anticipate their method and catch them and then watching somebody who's an absolute master and they're so good that you're not able to step outside them and observe objectively. They pull you in and then... You're watching the trick. Yeah, they, they're so captivating that you can't not participate in the way that they intend you to. Right. But the two things I really noticed were the way he writes about sights, well, sights and sounds and smells, three mm-hmm. things, I guess, but especially smells. There's a lot of description of smells hmm. in a way that is very evocative when I read it. And that that's something that I don't find a lot of other authors doing. Lots of authors will spend a lot of time describing the, the appearance of something visually, but Bradbury does a lot with smells. And uh, like in Touch with Fire, his descriptions of the temperature 
you know, one of the one of the guys observes that more murders happen at 92 degrees Fahrenheit than at any other temperature. Right. It's a factoid. Bradbury made it up. But the idea, he said, any hotter than that and you become lethargic, it's just too hot. Any cooler and you're not irritable enough. But right at 92, itching, sweaty, yeah. you know, just that the idea of that temperature. And then they're sitting out in this baking hot city watching this, you know, the, the description of the heat and the way it makes them feel. Uh, and the, the African son in the veldt when the parents go in and instantly the dad starts sweating. Mm-hmm. Even it's just a it's a simulation, but the mm-hmm. you know it's temperature controlled and it's intensity of light and it's just very evocative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we um, in the episode that well, I guess people don't care when we release the episodes. In our in our second episode, we talked a lot about Ray Bradbury on something wicked. We talked a lot about his style, and I think the conclusion we came to, especially in something wicked, is that he's a very generous stylist in that a lot of people that go over the top like he does that use metaphor like he does are drawing attention to themselves but he brandon kept comparing him to dickens which i actually think is a very good comparison because they're both just like eager to they they go over the top in some ways but it's they have this story that they're trying to tell yeah it's because they're eager to make you live and see and understand this story it's not because it's like hey look at this Great metaphor. Yeah. I don't have a lot. See how writerly I am. I don't have any patience for writers who stuff things into the story to prove to you that they're smarter than you. Right. I don't, I don't want to spend time reading that. Um, And I've, there are certainly some groaners. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, like, but, but back to Nothing Eric. about Bradbury passes the Strunk and White test. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, well, and and, and I, I am totally a fan of Strunk and White. Oh, yeah, when I was a, too, yeah. a writing teacher, I was I was deaf uh, you know, on bloated sentences and bloated paragraphs in my students' papers. But that was because oftentimes the bloat happened in their writing because they didn't have a story to tell. Mm-hmm. They right. didn't have something they were trying to say. And so they just needed to find something to talk about for a page and a half. Right. So and the glass was, was a verdant green. Blah, yeah, blah, well, blah, blah. it was just it was just yeah. hot air, mm-hmm. and it's never just hot air. Even at Bradbury at his worst, is he has a story he wants to tell, and he really wants to tell it. And he's he has still, an image, he has an idea, he has a thing. He he's going to pile four thousand metaphors maybe on, and maybe some of them will be groaners, like you said. But yeah, it's because he's he wants you to be there and see it and understand it. And you know, I've I've never thought when I was reading Ray Bradbury. Yeah, he doesn't buy into this story. He's just doing this for for the money. Needed to get paid, so he wrote this. It's just he seems like the kind of guy when I read his stories, he's a writer who writes because he loves writing and he can't help himself. Yeah, and that's very different from somebody trying to show off or put on a, a different style like a coat and show you how many cool metaphors they can cram into its pockets. Mm. <laughs> huh? 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 <laughs> and so I really like Bradbury for that reason, but some people don't just just don't get Ray Bradbury. Sci-fi is not for everybody. I read quickly, so my default is always hack through eight more chapters and see. But there are plenty of books that I put down where I've just been, yeah, no, not worth it, not going to finish this. And learning how to make a decision, you know, there are great books in the world that everybody should read. Mm-hmm. That whether or not you love them or reread them, they are still a common touchstone of our human experience in a way that makes them valuable to you whether you enjoy them or not. But the vast majority of things are take it or leave it. There's value in pushing yourself to enjoy or read things you don't necessarily automatically enjoy right away. But there's also value in knowing, okay, yeah, I'm not going to dig this. I have more important things to do with my time. Yeah. So knowing when to just cut it off and put a book away. The the father-son element of the story that I think is the most compelling part of something wicked this way comes of a child discovering that his father is actually a man mm. yeah, and discovering that his father cares and feels and has strength and wants to protect him 
and is able to love him. Um, and is able to protect him, actually. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't that doesn't really come in until later in the story. Yeah, There's a right. lot of Mister Electro and stuff to get through to get to that. And I understand if that stumps you. Yeah, you know the the scene at the end at the carnival where they're putting the wax bullet in the rifle to shoot the witch. Yep. You know, father and son working together. You know, the dad can't hold the rifle up because his arm is trashed. And he brings his son over and rests the rifle on his shoulder. And the two yeah. of them working together are pointing this thing. Um, you know, it's it's an amazing scene. The witch hunting them in the library. That's a great um, scene, yeah. Where she's trying to kill the father by stopping his heart. The son is terrified. And there's nobody there but the dad to do anything. The son is completely paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And it's also a story about a dad who feels like he's old discovering that it's not over for him. Mm-hmm. And even as a young father, it's easy to think, oh man, there's some things that are just like, I missed that ship, that's gone. Um, and I love the story for that reason, both for the son discovering the father and the father coming back to life. Yeah, that's what I love. So Eric, read it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I love about it. I loved it from the beginning. I, I was very drawn into the the, the, the style, the story. But yeah, that's the thing to love about Something Wicked This Way comes. And that is the reason to persevere if you're going to persevere. But life is short. But I think the thing, maybe we even said this, a lightning rod salesman comes down the street and is selling lightning rods to, what's his name, Will Holloway and Jim Nightshade, who were born on the either side of October 31st. If you can't dig that, like if you if that turns you off, then you already kind of know what you need to know about whether you're going to like the book or not. Like he starts so boldly metaphorical, so boldly prophetic, you know, so bold. What's the word? It's pretty on the nose. It's pretty on the nose. But in in a here is a story about one boy who's tempted to darkness. You know, they're both tempted by the darkness, and one has a you know nightshade, right, (laughs) (laughs) Mister Nightshade, and then there's Holloway, the light boy, and they know it. And then the guy, and a storm is coming. Something wicked this way is coming. And what's the metaphor for it? Why it's a storm? And you know, should you put the light? If you can't get into that, then like Andrew said, life is short and Bradbury isn't apologizing for it and I love him for it and if you find it to be tiresome I really I don't, I don't know that I can blame anybody like you say it's not like I just come back I come back to what Andrew said there are some books that yeah you you need to persevere through them if this was well if this was Moby Dick for right. instance <laughs> which I have Tried and failed to read several times. I've I have also, tried, I have and also and tried and failed to read, but we can all agree that Moby Dick is one of those books that we feel like we have failed right. for not having persevered through. The works yeah, of Shakespeare, right? you may or may not like Shakespeare, you but if you don't like Shakespeare, the problem is probably with you and not with Shakespeare. A you Midsummer know. Night's Dream is junk. <laughs> We struggled with that. Uh, I enjoyed Midsummer's Night's Dream, but we did did what is universally agreed to be the worst episode of the Bookening on it because we could not figure out what the heck to say about that. I'm sorry, I did not know you did a Bookening episode on that. That's <laughs> just, just last my, month. It's <laughs> one of my least favorite of his plays. Uh, no, no, I, don't be sorry. You're expressing the angst that we felt <laughs> about that yeah. thing because it's just like I like this. I think and, and GK. I Ch- then we have GK Chesterton telling us it's the best play that's ever been written. A true man masterpiece or something like that. Wasn't it Chesterton that you pulled out? Yeah, Chesterton says, far and away the best Shakespeare and therefore the best piece of literature. And so we're like, okay, well, it's Shakespeare for one. And we Chesterton's obsessed with fairyland. He writes all about it in orthodoxy. And there's a certain kind of story and a way of looking at the world that Chesterton is enamored of and that I don't, I don't care for. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, you know, I just, I don't, 
I don't agree. And there, and that's I, I say that recognizing that that's probably a defect in me because Chesterton is brilliant and I naturally trust him. But Chesterton often does write in a way that shows off his own acrobatics. There are certain things about Chesterton that I'm like, okay, yes, you're smarter than me. Doesn't mean I have to love everything <laughs> about it. Well, the thing um, about the essay on Midsummer Night Dream is you could tell he ha- you could tell that George Bernard Shaw had done something, and I don't know what it was, but Chesterton was mad, and he wanted to tell George Bernard Shaw, "Oh, you think that rational Shakespeare's the best? Well, actually, Midsummer Night's Dream with its fairyland—that's the best." You know, he had some he had a bone to pick. He had a bone to pick, and it was probably a good bone to pick, and one that I would agree with, and one that he would be wise to pick. But it was very much defined by whatever was go whatever the context was i have no idea but there was one you could tell um what's your favorite bradbury novel i really do like something wicked this way comes but my passion for bradbury is the short stories i don't remember what i re- what order i read bradbury i want to say i read fahrenheit 451 first and was like eh, it has some really good parts but i don't know and then Maybe I read something wicked next, but I want to say I read the short stories, particularly the October Country and the Illustrated Man, which I think all the stories that we're going to talk about today come from those two collections, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. I I had a copy of the complete stories of Ray Bradbury, which actually is no longer complete because he's he continued to write after that. Um, but I I came across them not divided up into the volumes in which they were originally released. So uh, chronology of when they came out and which volume they were in was never really part of my experience of them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fair. Although I would say I can tell the difference between which stories came from where, because I do remember those collections and the the writing is like the Velt, which we're going to talk about is a somewhat more simplistic. It's a younger man's story, I think, than um, particularly the one about the guy that gets off on the train that that uh the town where no one got off the town which has a wonderful adaptation that we'll have to mention later on <laughs> yes jeff goldblum yeah i i can tell the difference yeah jeff goldblum plays the character it's, it's really bad um <laughs> but uh i i can tell the difference is your is your collection in chronological like the order is it in any particular order is it alphabetical is it uh it's not alphabetical I'm not sure what the order is. Yeah, I don't know. Can I look at I could probably tell you. This is the stories of Ray Bradbury, 1980 edition, Alfred Knopf. What's the table tense? Yeah, I want to say this is... It might be chronological. I want to say it's chronological. The Velt is I know, fairly homecoming, early on. Homecoming, yeah, Small Assassin. Yeah, I want to I say it's chronological. Okay. Um, <clears throat> five stories picked. Uh, We've got The Scythe, The City, The Velt, The Town Where No One Got Off, and touched with fire. Touched with fire. All right. Well, let's just take them in that order then. So the scythe is the first one on that list. What made you pick? Uh, I guess we might as well just for the the Bradbury neophyte. We might as well tell basically tell them what these stories are. If you don't want spoilers, then um, we'll just turn it off and read the story. It won't take you that long. Yeah, yeah. It'll take you like less than fifteen minutes for most of these stories. Probably if you're a, a quick yeah. reader. Maybe a half an hour for, yeah. you know, if you want to sit down and luxuriate in it. So the, the Scythe is a story about a family uh, traveling and their car breaks down and they uh, get out and end up coming up to a farmhouse and they find inside the farmhouse an, an elderly farmer uh, dead on a bed with a note on his chest bequeathing his farm and all of his effects to whoever finds him asking only that they continue to harvest the wheat field. And so they decide to settle there. So they bury the man, and the dad, Drew, um, picks up the scythe, which has this little plaque on it that says, he who wields me wields the world. And he begins cutting the wheat field, and it's an odd field because it ripens in patches. And then at a certain point, he realizes that he is 
harvesting lives, that the scythe is death, and that every stalk of wheat is a person, and that he harvests them as they become ripe, as their time to be harvested approaches, he it's his job to cut the wheat. And obviously, as a, as a premise, that's way out there. Right. But the impact on him, he decides... You know, what happens is he realizes one day he's out there cutting and he realizes he just cut, uh, he just killed an old friend. His mom first, actually, wasn't it? His mother it? first. Um, I, think there was all, I think he also runs across an old friend, but then he decides he's not, whenever he finds his family, his wife and his kids, he's not going to cut them. Mm-hmm. And eventually he does find where they are and decides not to cut. And when he stops cutting, death in the world ceases. People don't continue living happy lives. They basically go into this sort of comatose limbo state. When they were supposed to die, they they weren't they didn't die, and so they're kind of stuck. And the tension of that builds and builds and builds and builds. And his his house burns down with his family inside it on the day they were supposed to die. But they're all there in their beds asleep. He can't wake them. They're not burned, but he can't recover them. And eventually he goes completely nuts and just rushes back out to the field with the scythe and just starts cutting everywhere. He cuts his family's wheat, and then he just starts raging through the field. Ripe wheat, green wheat, doesn't matter. And the way that Bradbury grabs hold of that little scene and describes the 20th century Mm -hmm. in the context of... Death just went nuts and... Slicing out huge scars in the wheat field, bombs shattered London, Moscow, Tokyo, the blades swung insanely in the kilns of Belzen and Buchenwald took fire, the blades sang crimson wet... And, you know, these explosions rock white sands in Hiroshima and the Bikini Atoll. And then, you know, foreshadowing the grain, he keeps cutting. And then it says, you know, India trembled, Asia stirred, and Africa woke in the night as though these, you know, these great, great violence is coming. Mm -hmm. And then the story just sort of zooms out from there. You know, people sometimes drive down this road and find this old farm and there's still this crazy farmer out there just ripping away at this wheat field. And so the story doesn't really have any closure to it. It just sets up the idea that something drastic changed and that death is no longer contained to those whose time has come. Well, there are two things that I love about that and two things that I responded. This story has always stuck with me. I mentioned it in our uh, Something Wicked, not having read it for maybe 20 years uh, until I just read it this week in preparation for this because you said it was one of the ones you wanted to do. But it's always stuck with me. There's two things that I really love about a story like that and maybe for people that are wondering about, you know, one of the things Eric said was uh, weird fiction. Maybe I just don't know what a how to approach weird fiction. Well, I don't know that I can really tell you how to approach weird fiction. That's kind of a weird question. But in terms of what I like about weird fiction, I like that it can be so boldly metaphorical. I like to see someone on the ground in the midst of the 20th century trying to make sense of what's going on and just finding a bold metaphor for it. And and I, I like that you can get away with that. And in some sort of realist story, you can't necessarily just do that. And then I like, I've always enjoyed the idea that at the corners of our experience, there are things going on that are just out of sight. You know, that I could be driving down the road, I could drive past a farmhouse, n- not take much notice of it besides, ah, that was odd. And really, there's some world-defining thing happening happening over there. I love the idea. You know, I mean, C.S. Lewis does it a little bit in his uh, science fiction and fantasy stories, but all all the great uh, sort of weird fiction people do it, I think. It's just the idea of the mundane meeting with the mystical or with the the mythical. Um, 
And I love that. And I love that. And as Chesterton points out, that's what a fairy tale actually is. Because when we read a fairy tale, the woodcutter's daughter seems like it's a faraway fairy tale-ish thing. But to someone who was reading Grimm's when it first came out, um, they're just reading the story of someone going about their mundane life who suddenly meets a witch on the road. And I love stories that can do that in a modern context for us. You know, I'm driving down the road and I drive past death wielding his scythe and it just looks like an old burned down house and a field of wheat and a crazy old farmer. I really, I really like and respond to those things. I don't know that I have anything more significant to say about it than that, but that's what I like about weird fiction. And if somebody doesn't like that, if they think, oh, that's just kind of like, like lame and just a weird parable and who cares and what does it really explain anyway i can i can understand that but i love it i'm trying to remember where i read it but it might have been i don't think it was maybe it was chesterton but somebody describing the difference between a lot of, of fairy tales and older stories and more modern stories and they made the comparison that a lot of a lot of fairy tales and older stories are about a normal person who's suddenly thrust into a very abnormal or unusual world that is chesterton I that's think, chesterton yeah, yeah. Is, is that an orthodox i think so yeah that's where most modern right? stories are about a very abnormal or neurotic or broken person trying to function in the normal world. And I think we have enough of our own problems, our own neuroses, that reading a story about somebody else's neuroses, when the, the setting of their world itself is bland and normal, doesn't have any appeal to me at all. You know, um, I think also that's part of the reason why we have such an interest in superhero stories, mm-hmm. um, which I generally don't, I don't like. Um, very few that I've ever read um, or watched begin to crack open the question of how does it really work in a person's life to live with these powers? It just it would distort it would distort everything mm-hmm. in in ways that are you know the unintended consequences would be outrageous. And most superhero stories require us to simply suspend disbelief of that. And you know, so I don't I don't find the Avengers very compelling because you know. I do like superhero stories, but I do also, I do always want somebody to just do the one that actually really deals with, like, I'd love to see the Superman movie, for example, that just deals with, here's a guy that can solve world hunger, that can stop all war, that can get rid of all nuclear weapons, that can do this and this and this and this and this. And then we've still got humanity left and we've still got original sin and we've still got all the, you know, what actually happens if Superman show, that's just a random example that popped into my head, but well, it's, it's an unsolvable problem. Right. You can't, you can't, no matter how much you power up a superhero, he can't solve sin. Right. And so there's a, there's a frustrating, you're, you're approaching the world's problems with the wrong tool. And no matter how much, how big and how powerful you make that tool, how capable you make that person, it's a failure. Mm-hmm. It just fails. Um, but I think there's much more, there's much more value and interest in a normal person in an, in an abnormal world. And a lot of Brave Bradbury stories are about very normal seeming people in very unusual environments. I didn't pick it for today, but there's a really funny story. It's about a guy who opens a hot dog stand on Mars. He gets there early before the settlements really happened. He and his wife left Earth, and she wasn't happy about it. He had a vision to go there, and you know they're setting up literally like an out an outdoor roadside hot dog stand. Like he's making onions and all this stuff, and they're waiting for the first ships of the colonists to arrive. And she's basically saying, "We were stupid to come here. We left everything we know. This is not going to work." He's like, "Oh, it's going to be great." And they're standing there, and he's he's waxing eloquent about how they're going to make all this money and everything's going to be great. And they're watching there. And while they watch, they see Earth suddenly consumed in a nuclear holocaust. 
from Mars, they watch Earth explode. And then the wife turns to the husband and says, honey, I think it's going to be an off year. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the idea of, you know, the kind of guy you would run into at Wrigley Field, you know, a hot dog, <laughs> yeah, a hot yeah, dog yeah. guy on the side of the road on Mars with these big plans, big dreams for what's going to happen. And that exposes the nature of people without having to make up anything extraordinary about people. The dynamic of that of that marriage and those conversations, you know, the husband is the eternal optimist, always after some harebrained scheme. The wife is annoyed and frustrated with him. And then the whole thing is just like, well, it's actually, it's not going to work. A lot of people do criticize weird fiction, science fiction, the Star Wars movies, whatever, for having simplistic characters. I, I know I've said this a billion times on the bookening, I guess, now that I think of it. But I, I think those stories actually, when you're going to put people into an abnormal crazy situation it actually helps to have super relatable simple human motivations like the, the in the side that's just a farmer or what is he he's just like a, a drifter or something. he was a it's, farmer it's, he was a farmer yeah it's like you get the sense that you're dealing with a dust bowl situation they're on their way to california like seeing a steinbeck and grapes of, and grapes of yeah. wrath yeah. yeah and they broke down on the side of the road took a wrong turn the kids are hungry ran out of gas Kids are hungry. He doesn't want to go up to the farmhouse because he doesn't want to beg. Yep. His wife is like, the kids are hungry. We, we got to do something. We don't something. have any food. We got to do something. And then he softens up and melts and humbles himself and he goes and then he encounters from there, you know, he enters the rabbit hole. Right. You have a super abnormal psychological portrait of what, of, you know, you or I in this situation. The story doesn't work. You need the simple character with universal human emotions and feelings and desires in order for the story to be the story. What do you think about the scythe, Jake? I don't know that I can, I mean, it, it with all these stories, what you really do get is the sense that Bradbury is just more of, a, he's an ideas guy. He's a very fertile, creative, and he has an idea, he sits down and he writes it. Mm -hmm. And then he has another idea and he sits down and he writes it. I like what you said about it. I think that that's often, you know, we talked a lot about this with Something Wicked This Way Comes. You have prosaic, normal kids in a prosaic, normal town, and then great evil comes. And so decide you take a normal family on the road and you throw them into a very wild, bizarre situation. Let's see what happens. And But it is simple. It's almost like a parable or like a joke. Here's the setup. Here's the punchline. It is just the idea. And I think most Ray Bradbury stories probably are like that. And that's not a criticism or a flaw. It's just a description of what they are. They are, here's the one thing that I'm going to tell you well, about. Well, it's also, yeah, it's one of the weaknesses. It's like uh, w when we were talking about before uh, Twilight Zone episodes, and I guess Bradbury wrote one or two Twilight Zone episodes. He wrote a number of them. Well, this is a super nerdy thing to know, but he wrote a number of them. The only one that was actually ever produced was, um, I believe, Icing the Body Electric is what it's called. It's the one about the robot grandmother. But the thing about um, any old Twilight Zone episode or whatever is there's always one conceit, and the conceit itself is always an interesting conceit. And whether or not they pull it off, whether or not it pays off in the end is a totally different question. But the conceit's what's really interesting. And that's what you what can, sticks with you. And it is what sticks with you and what you remember. And I think that that, I think there are times when Bradbury really pulls things off well. Mm -hmm. And there are times when he doesn't pull them off so well, but there's always an interesting idea going on. Yeah, agreed. Anything else to say about the scythe before we move on to our next pick? 
Nope. All right. What is next? Next um, is the city. The so city. the opening line is the city waited 20,000 years. And when you pointed out that the sort of one dimensional or the you get one conceit, one shot part of the short stories is both a strength and a weakness. One of the things it really costs is you just don't have time to develop characters. Every mm-hmm. story has fresh characters right. and they're only developed insofar as you need a certain amount of development for their choices and dialogue and things to make sense in the story. And beyond that, they're left mm-hmm. on, you know... I wouldn't say unexamined. Though. I would say just you have to realize that's it's what a he's limitation. Doing. It's a limitation, and if you come to it expecting great character development, you're expecting the wrong thing from the wrong genre. You know, yeah. right? Yeah, it is a question of expectations. One of the things I like about these fairly normal people in these abnormal circumstances is you never have to contend with the idiot ball that you run into in a lot of modern fiction, like you know, people who have special knowledge or powers or things. Right? You know, why is it that? they don't use them all the time. Why is it that they seem unable to solve some problems which should be easily solvable? Um, what's the term for an overpowered character? Is it a Mary Sue? Uh, Mary Sue, kind of. Mary, Mary Sue is what they call a character that has all the virtues that we wish a character would have. Right. And just Yeah, a, a, a character that's just, you know, too good. Right? Yeah. Um, you never run across that in Bradbury in Bradbury because the the characters aren't aren't powered usually. Some of the characters do have abilities or there are in the skeleton or the small assassin there are characters who are extraordinary. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case where you feel like Bradbury's written himself into the story as the hero. So the city, it's about fear and it's about it's a revenge story. It's a revenge story of a dead race against the human race. And it touches on an idea that appears in a number of other other pieces of fiction of there being some kind of backstory beyond that prehistory. Mm-hmm. So it's the Planet of the Apes. It's uh, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. The idea that there was uh, a great civilization, a great war, something that happened tens of thousands of years earlier, earlier than our earliest known history, and it has passed from knowledge on one side or both sides of the conflict and is gradually being rediscovered. So this city exists as a weapon against Earth, against men. And a rocket ship lands and a crew of men get out and they start exploring the city. And the city, while it's a machine, is active. It's weighing them. It's smelling them. It's listening to them. It's, it's sensing the materials of their ship, the, the way that they walk. It's, it's trying to figure out, are these men from Earth? And once it figures out whether or not these visitors are men from Earth, then it's going to decide either to follow its programming and take revenge on Earth or let them escape unscathed because other rocket ships have landed with explorers from other worlds that were not Earth and the city let them escape. But in this case, it is men from Earth. And so the city takes revenge for the extermination of the entire race that was on the planet. How do they do it, Nathan? Well, they uh, what do they do? They, they end up eviscerating all the men and uh, packing. There, there's a nice gory description of them taking out all the innards and then putting me- new mechanical innards in. And they're basically creating like bioweapons, aren't they? Like they're going to go back. They end up packing bombs. Yeah. yeah. They load the, the rocket mm. ship up with biological weapons mm-hmm. and send them back to Earth to mm-hmm. exterminate man. Yep. yep. Um, and that, that, old, that whole story as an idea of man's, the, the danger of our technology putting us in situations we're not prepared for uh, and exposing us to dangers we can't anticipate. Bradbury is not, he's not a technological 
optimist in the sense he's like he's not looking forward to the singularity. Bradbury is not a guy right. <laughs> who would have been totally excited about the idea of downloading your brain into a solid state drive so you can be done with your body and live forever in a network. No, he wouldn't have been excited about Alexa as we'll find Which, out in a later story. You know, and and there are many people today who are entirely excited about the idea of getting rid of our biological bodies and living in a machine. And it's yep. and it's crazy. But the uh, the anxiety or the fear of what technology can lead to, you know, Terminator, AI, Skynet, right. that kind of stuff can take a very apocalyptic here on Earth war between men and the machines. Um, I didn't like the Will Smith movie, I, Robot. It was a weird adaptation of Asimov and changed a number of things. But that that constant theme of man's going to create the thing that will destroy man is an undercurrent in tons of sci-fi. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, you know, man accidentally genetically modifies a disease and it wipes out the race or creates a robot and it wipes out the race or this or that. And the way Bradbury handles it here is unusual in the sense that the people who are going to be the agents of the destruction of Earth, this crew of men, have no knowledge. They are the great, 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 great grandchildren of the last guy who knew what happened and they know nothing about what's going on and so they come in this situation bearing the guilt of xenocide of an entire race and they're completely unaware of it and so a judgment is going to be carried out against them that they had no no knowledge of mm-hmm. and that makes it there's a that's an additional layer of it being frightening answering for the sins of your father um that you had no idea about mm-hmm. i always like any sci-fi story that has a history to it i was making fun of it in dune a minute ago but i mean even in just something as simple as star wars one of the things that i think is dumb about the prequels is that they give you the whole history whereas it's wonderful to be able to use your imagination before they came along and just think oh what was the old republic like what were the jedi like like lord of the rings is similar when someone can do the world building feels lived in and it feels like there's a history and it feels like all the really cool awesome stuff happened before the story you know all the 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 whole history that you would have loved to have read stuff like that can really fire your imagination and that's something i love about good sci-fi or fantasy stories i think we're really hungry for those kind of myths because we live in a modern culture that doesn't have its own myths anymore Mm. like we read norse myths or we read greek myths and they're cool, but they're not our myths in right. a way. And entering into some other world and uh, and enjoying their myths, their backstory, their their prehistory is really fun. But it, when I thought about why I liked it so much, I I thought, well, it's because I don't really we don't have a I don't, I don't shared history, mm-hmm. a shared. Um, and I I that makes me sad. Yeah, isn't it Captain America and Iron Man though? And Star Wars. Isn't no, that it's, what it no, is? it's not. <laughs> um, Maybe it will be a couple generations from now. <laughs> so connecting to a mythology or a story that's that old, that goes back that far, it appears in a bunch of other pieces of literature, a bunch of other kinds of stories. Um, it's in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. It's in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. The idea of rediscovering something that was forgotten, that was lost, in a way that's very familiar. And in the Screwtape Letters, during the bombing in the Blitz, when the subject, when Screwtape's patient, is finally killed in the bombing of London, um, and he sees, for the first time, the man sees the angels that have been with him. He sees Screwtape. Mm-hmm. He sees Wormwood. Right. And sees him for what he actually is. And then he sees Christ. And, you know, the, the idea that, oh, it was you. Mm-hmm. All along, at the end of Four Quartets, Eliot writes about getting back to the garden and the apple tree, you know, beyond the waterfall, where the you know the echo of the ch- the voices of children, and knowing the place, knowing the place again for the first time. I think I feel very disconnected from ancient things, mm-hmm. and we have we have incredible 
connection to the ancient world through the scriptures, but it's easy to hunger after a different connection than the one God's given us. Right. Mm-hmm. And to hunger after stories that are more entertaining in ways than the ones that God has given us. I don't but, want to I want to dig into the nature of the baggage of sin that we all carry, of the forbidden. I love a good horror story. Somebody wanted us to do H.P. Lovecraft this year, and we did it. Maybe maybe we'll do him one year. I don't know. But he's always really good about the, here's the ancient civilization that came and had this war, and they had their slaves, and there was the uprising, and all this, these things happened, and now the, you know, the great gods lie in the deep waiting for us, and it's just that creepy sense of something happened a long time ago, you know, millennia ago, and, and, and now it's going yeah. to have ramifications. It's waiting for you. I've it's lost track back. of how many how many horror stories and movies are like, they awakened an ancient evil. Right, like, yeah. how many ancient evils are lying around <laughs> at the bottom of the well of some farmhouse in Topeka? Right, Come yeah. on. <laughs> how did ancient evil end up there? Um, Turns out ancient evil's everywhere. That's the well, point. But especially in Topeka. In the bayous of Florida, <laughs> apparently. Or Egypt. Or, you know, I mean, a lot of times it's in a nice exotic location. I mean, but, but. but that kind of, you know, it's also the question of collective guilt mm. and Ender's Game. And mm-hmm. the Ender's Game series is a good example of that. You know, anytime you have a xenocide where an entire species is exterminated, how how the culture that did the killing, that won the war, processes and copes with the, um, we killed an entire planet, we killed an entire race, uh, we didn't just bomb a country, we didn't just nuke a city, we exterminated something. Orson Scott Card is actually a good touch point, and I would say for somebody that finds Bradbury to be a little bit much but wants something that's maybe slightly more accessible, also slightly less good, but... (laughs) (laughs) A lot less poetic. A lot less poetic. More technical and... More technical. But if if somebody just wants somebody that is kind of an idea man that does these kinds of stories and does them in an approachable way, the short fiction of Orson Scott Card is is often good in that sense. If you feel like trucking through the Ender's Game, the Andrew Wiggins series, uh, Ender's Game was really good. I found Speaker for the Dead to be intolerable. I hated it. I've never read Ender's Game. Um, I, I liked, haven't either. He did a... Um, You've not read Ender's Game? Nope. You guys have to do Ender's Game for the booking. Maybe we will. I've read... Um, he did like a Revolutionary War thing, fantasy series that I liked. I think it was called Alvin Maker or something like that. But I liked that. And I like his... I have a big collection of the short fiction of Orson Scott Card, and a lot of it's really good. I've actually never read any of his short fiction. Should I? Yeah, I think you'd like it. Yeah, I mean, he he, he always has interesting ideas. There's, there's a civilization whose greatest delicacy is themselves. They cannibalize themselves and they eat it. That's one that I remember. That's good. There's a lot of stuff with time travel. Probably some of it was cool when he did it, but we've seen it in a million movies since. Do you have any particular reaction to the city, Jake? Uh, <laughs> Do you like all that ev- eviscerating of uh, human flesh and inserting the brass tubes and the brass tubes? Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's like you know, it's it's human beings as the frog in your high school dissection <laughs> class. I liked it just on the pure level of retro tech. I love that they show up in a rocket. I like that every Ray Bradbury science fiction story ever has a rocket that goes somewhere and it's called a rocket. I like yeah. that they're all smoking cigarettes and. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's just I, I, yeah. The the little time markers are pretty fun. Yeah, the time markers are fun. Nothing more sophisticated. Yeah, the to vintage say about future. It. Yeah, vintage future. <laughs> retro retro future is, um, is fun. Yeah, the idea that we came from another planet and we eradicated the the diseased among us. You know, revenge stories are a classic kind of story. They mm. appear in every genre. Yep. This one where 
revenge is personal, but the people who are exacting the revenge are long dead. 20,000 years gone. Yep. Yeah, and that they've they've built a weapon, they built a city for no other purpose than to wait and wait and wait. It's very, you know, it's very Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, just very Ahab. We can just yeah. wait forever, yeah. You know, with my last breath, I stab at thee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once the men come and the city kills them, puts the robotic parts in them and arms them with the bombs and puts them back on their ship and sends them back to Earth, then the city dies. Yeah. Because its only job, you know, it says slowly, pleasurably, the city enjoyed the luxury of dying. Mm-hmm. Right. That once its job is done... All the machines shut down, the power turns off, the city relaxes, the lenses close. It's just, it's over. It did its job. Yeah. Yeah. And it knows that the revenge is, is certain. Mm-hmm. And that's just like, yikes. <laughs> you know, the, the, to build a thing like that <laughs> and to go into your grave knowing that you've laid a trap for a world that you'll take your eye for an eye even if it takes 100,000 years. And have the willpower to be like, I'll be dead. I won't be there. But you know what? It's nice to know that, the, that there'll be revenge, maybe, if they happen to land on it. We've set our trap. It's yeah. Hey, thanks for listening to The Booketing Every Day, or Every Day. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for listening to The Booketing every day. <laughs> I know you're a true fan. You like to listen to The Booketing every day. We've only got 61 episodes. How many times have you listened to those episodes? If you're going to listen to, uh, let's see, there's 365 days in a year. So if you're going to listen to how many times through the entire run of 61, 62, 63 episodes of The Booketing would you have to listen to it in About a year? About six. About six times. So you've already heard all these episodes six times. And probably your favorite thing is these little outros we do. I'm a big outro fan. You know the score. You know The Booketing was produced by Nathan Alberson, hosted by him, uh, performed or co-hosted, whatever you want to say. We never really have nailed down what to call him. But our panelists were the Jake Mentzel and the, the Brandon Chastine. And uh, oh, look, we've got a special guest on the outro. <laughs> Whoa! Hey! How did I even get here? It's Ben Solzer from Sound of Sanity. Whoa! <laughs> I'm feeling insane about being on the booking <laughs> outro, Nathan. Well, we're happy to have you, Ben. It's possible we're recording this outro at a later date and that we forgot to do it. it, it but uh, what you just heard was the first two stories of Ray Brad. Well, you didn't just hear the stories. What you just heard was a discussion on the first two stories of Ray Bradbury. We're going to talk about five of them and all, so we'll be n- back next week to talk about three more Ray Bradbury stories. And then it'll be into Martin Dressler by Stephen Milhauser, a novel that I enjoy quite a bit, but that people have some complicated feelings. And we might even hear some of those feelings from our uh, our guest, Andrew Henry, next week. And then you'll hear lots more of those feelings and thought ideas and things from Jake Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. And uh, Will they hear from me, Nathan? Nope. <laughs> they hear my feelings? <laughs> they will hear zero feelings. They can go over okay. to Sound of Sanity. Find podcast. <laughs> they want to hear your feelings on all kinds of things. But not Martin Dressler. Mar- not Martin Dressler. You got okay. any thoughts on Martin Dressler? I no, but he's an American dreamer, Ben. Okay. Do you have any thoughts on the My Soul Among Lions Kickstarter, Ben? Yeah, it's really great. You should support it. Yeah, it's still going this week. People should support it. This is your last week. That's right. If just one person supported it for eight thousand dollars, then we'd have our Kickstarter goal. Snicker snack. Snick attack. Snicker snack. Oh, snicker snack. Uh, anyway, folks, thanks for listening to the booking. We'll be back next week with a longer episode on Ray Bradbury, and uh, hope you enjoy. See you next week. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>